questions haunt every life, writes Andy Crouch. The first, what are we meant to be? The second, why are we so far from what we're meant to be? Welcome to Restoring the Soul. I'm Michael John Cusick, and this is the podcast that helps you close the gap between what you're meant to be and what keeps you from being all that. Welcome to the program. I'm glad you're back for another episode of this always interesting, sometimes thoughtful, and occasionally playful podcast where I get to talk with cool people who have caught the attention of my curious, if not ADD, mind. And today I'm talking with someone where this conversation gets playful and we laugh a lot. It is none other than Brant Hansen, who is an author nationally syndicated radio show host, and he's also an advocate for healing children with correctable disabilities through Cure International. Now, here's the thing. Brant is hilarious. I've been on his show multiple times, and this was the first time where I was interviewing the interviewer. Uh, He's one of the most brilliant people that I have known, but his unique story and set of gifts that he's been given, he's also one of the most humble people that I know. And of course, Brant would be the first person to guffaw when he hears that. So here's the thing. On his official website, BrantHanson.com, and in case you're wondering how to spell that, it's H-A-N-S-E-N.com, BrantHanson.com. He describes himself as, quote, and I'm probably going to laugh through this. (laughs) He describes himself as, quote, a toast eater, occasional cape wearer, accordion player, and also host of The Brant Hansen Show. On that same website, he has two bios. And the first one, which I'm actually going to read for part two of this two-part conversation, he says, here's my impressive-sounding bio. Please use this one for professional stuff. And then down below it says, my real bio. And I will read that to you, just so you get a, a feel and a flavor for this man. Brant Hansen has no idea what he's doing. He keeps showing up, and people keep asking him to do stuff, and he keeps saying yes, except when he has to say no. And then he feels kind of guilty about it. He has ideas, and sometimes they leak out on paper or over the airwaves, and people read them or hear them and then look at him funny. He likes toast so much that he can't really allow himself to eat it anymore. He used to eat a loaf of burnt dry toast every morning to start the day. He has had to back off. He realizes he has a problem. He doesn't want to brag about it or anything, but he was president of the Illinois Student Librarians Association. He was also all-conference in the Scholastic Bowl and lettered in basketball and football, both for keeping statistics. And he was the president of his own stamp collector club, which consisted of himself. Brant always looks inappropriately intense. He can't help it. He also has nystagmus, which causes his eyes to shake and his head to move involuntarily. He's always been ashamed of this, but it is what it is. Brant's wife thinks he's handsome anyway, so when he's around her, he doesn't have to think about it. Brant is really, really skeptical, more skeptical than skeptics, as it turns out, especially the one-way sort who are only skeptical of religious claims, but not themselves. He thinks Jesus is the only person who really makes sense. Jesus said no one is good but God, and this affirms Brant's observations of himself, others, and all of human history. Brant is diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome. It causes him to say things you're not supposed to say, apparently. 
But he asked God to please, please help him, not to hurt people, but to be a blessing to them. Brandt is thankful for anyone who wants to be friends, but he gravitates to outcasts and weirdos because they're usually nice to him. You'll enjoy this conversation as Brandt talks about his new book coming out in late November, Blessed Are the Misfits. So let's jump in to part one of this two-part conversation with my friend Brandt Hansen. Brent Hansen, I'm so excited to talk to you because uh, you're the professional interviewer and I get to interview the interviewer. <laughs> I like this too. It's a lot easier on this end, I think. It's kind of like a junior high quarterback uh, coaching Peyton Manning. <laughs> I don't know if I'd go with that analogy, actually. Well, how about this one? Since you're a, like a, a Star Trek guy, how about... Um, how about a teenage Star Trek geek giving William Shatner acting lessons? All right. All right. I'll okay. go with that. That's, yeah. But no, it's an honor because you, you have made a living for many years of, of interviewing and talking to folks. And we've gotten to know each other uh, by me being on your show, I think, four years ago. And you've been so gracious to do that. But um, Well, it's, it's really, honestly, I, I know it can be viewed that way since you're the author, but you have things to say that are a blessing to people that I talk to. And your book that you've written and the stuff you're continuing to work on and continuing to do is a blessing for my audience. So it's never, it'd be nice if I just did it like, hey, I want to help out this guy. But it's, it's, I just, I appreciate what you do. And you say things in a way that I want to say, and I don't know how to say it. And um, there's so many people that relate to the stuff you've been working on. So anyway, all that to say, thank you. Well, thanks, Brent. Um, enough about me, though. Let's talk about <laughs> let's talk about me. <laughs> sure. Um, I'm excited to talk to you because you have your second book out. Your first was Unoffendable, and your new book is called Blessed Are the Misfits, which I'm eager to jump into. But first, tell me what it's like to be on. Uh, you're on Way FM in the mornings, and that's a that's a huge slot. Tell me about what that's like and the impact that you're having, and and are you enjoying that professionally? Of course, if if you say no, I don't enjoy it. You'll probably not have a job. Yeah, um, this is it. I'm I'm tendering my two week notice right now. <laughs> Thank you. Now you know what it's it's kind of weird the way this is set up, and not many people understand it or, or maybe even care. But I actually don't work for the radio stations and they don't pay me. And so I do a radio show every day, but what they do is they have to, if they carry the show, they have to air time about cure international. Oh, my full-time job is with cure. Um, I have a, I have a producer who's wonderful that helps me and she's paid by our syndicator. Um, and so the stations, they pick up the show and the way that, they, you know, make it worth our while. Besides, we love the influence and be able to talk about Jesus with people um, is they have to let people know about Cure International. So um, I'm honored to be on Way FM. They're one of our affiliates. We're on a couple hundred stations, which is great because, again, the word gets out about Cure. And that's been pretty awesome. I had no idea that was the arrangement. That's really cool. So let's let's talk about Cure because a lot of people may have heard of uh, in the Colorado area Way FM or they've heard you on um, that syndicated program. But um, tell me about Cure. We have a mutual connection there, as you know. 
Yeah, uh, we've got hospitals and programs around the world, but what, here's what we do, and it's so simple. It's, it's, everybody should be able to understand this immediately. We heal people and proclaim the kingdom of God. It's that simple, and it's what Jesus told his followers to do. So um, the, the couple that started it, Scott and Sally Harrison, years ago, orthopedic surgeon and his brilliant wife, who's a medical professional as well, they just thought, wait a second, we can, we can heal people who have correctable disabilities around the world. Let's do it, and let's tell them about Jesus. And so now we've got these hospitals and programs and thousands of surgeries going on, and it's the most remarkable thing you've ever seen in your entire life. And some of the collaborations are pretty cool. Like our connection is I've been to the United Arab Emirates twice and Oasis Hospital is there and they do a lot with Cure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's one of Cure's hospitals. It's a little different because of the UAE, but we serve a lot. Of, they're, all, they're all obviously charity hospitals. And you might know UAE people are not charity type people, um, at least on the receiving end too often. They're all millionaires. Um, but... There's the huge portion of the population, almost 90% of the people there are immigrants. And so we get to serve a lot of that community as well and um, deliver a lot of babies, care for a lot of moms. And it's one of the few places, maybe the only place on the entire peninsula, or not peninsula, or what, yeah, the Arabian Peninsula that's got scripture all over the wall and it's all about Jesus. It's kind of remarkable. Yeah. I won't go into the whole story here, and I might not even be accurate, but as I recall, the uh, the sheikh of the United Arab Emirates, one of them, his father was delivered by the Oasis Hospital Christian Missionary out in the middle of the desert, and therefore that hospital has uh, pretty much total freedom to do whatever they want in terms of being Jesus-based in this Arab culture. It's, it is remarkable, and that is why. It's um, because as they've even explained it that way. Because um, when people are like, why is this hospital here? Well, they they explain it. The royal family says they were here before the oil. They loved us before we were rich. This we were Bedouin people who were impoverished, and here come a couple Christian missionaries to live in the desert and uh, set up a hospital next to an oasis to deliver babies, so so the moms wouldn't die anymore. And um, that's quite a quite a remarkable story. That's such a kingdom story. Yes. Uh, so, so what? There's, there's so much of that. I'm sorry. I was just going to say there's so much of that. Uh, all, there's something about healing um, that I can see why Jesus, like three quarters of his miracles are healing miracles. It's just such an obvious expression of what the kingdom is. And then the things that happen as a result of it are, are remarkable. What specifically is your role with Cure? What, what are you doing? Well, I'm just leveraging my radio skills to uh, try to do something. Um because I'm not a doctor, because I'm not smart enough. And um, I just am honored to tell people about it because, again, as somebody who's naturally a skeptic, I need to see the kingdom at work, or I tend to think it's just a big show, and I start to wonder if it's true. And when I get to visit these hospitals and see what people are doing and the, what healing means to people and see Jesus walked out that way, it's really, it's really helpful for me just personally. Um, and so I love telling people about it too, because I think there are a lot of people like me as well that are looking at the world and going, okay, where is God in this? And I want to tell people, well, come here and I'll show you. Uh, let me take you to a hospital or at least tell you about it because God's at work. He's just not so much on the stages as he is on the margins. 
Isn't that interesting how sometimes people who, whether they're atheists or other religious folks or Christians that have kind of walked away from Christianity, how oftentimes they say, you know, well, uh, Christianity is not doing anything positive or anything like that. And when you do look on the margins as opposed to those stages, you see amazing things. Yeah, I think that's an intellectual shortcut, and I think a lot of people take it. And they can look at, you know, and categorize easily and go, well, see what religion's doing? Religion's the problem with the world. I mean, we hear that all the time. The problem is religion, and I think, okay, I'm skeptical of that. I'm skeptical of of skepticism. And I want to ask, wait a second, these religions are saying diametrically opposed things in some cases. And also, what I've seen is beautiful. I know there's... There's idiocy that goes on in the name of Christ. I mean, that's that's just the case. Whenever there's a, a way to get attention or a way to get power, a way to get significance, people will misuse it. But on the margins where there's no significance or glamour to be gained, um, there's some wonderful things to see. And people actually following Jesus, I have a hard time looking at what Cure's doing, for instance, and saying, see, religion's bad. I mean, Little girls are walking and running and little boys are able to play soccer and they couldn't walk before. And it's because of Jesus. It's difficult for me to look at that even skeptically and say, boy, this is just, this is just a big sham because it's not. Tell me, tell me some of the other stories or experiences that you've seen as you've traveled to these hospitals and seen the kingdom. Oh, my goodness, dude. I, I could go on forever and I won't. Um, but just being in the operating rooms. I was in one, I can't remember what I've told you about this before, but like the first time I visited a cure hospital was in Afghanistan and it's in Kabul and I was in the operating room with a doctor and he was doing a surgery on a 17 year old girl who had cleft palate, 17. Wow. And she had a big hole in her face, obviously in her, in her palate and under her nose and she had never gone to school, not a day, and she had been kept inside because she was considered cursed and her parents didn't want anybody to know about her. So here's this now young woman who's only seen herself with a, with a hole in her face her entire life and she's been considered a monster. And the, the result of a, of a surgery like that is so immediate. I mean, she's still got the the suture there, you can see, but her face is restored. It's put back together. And I got to sit on her bed with her mom. Again, she's 17, very, very shy. And her name was Nazar. And I sat there and I was trying to think, I want this girl to see herself because every, every girl who's 17 wants to be beautiful. You know, she wants to, she wants to be beautiful. And I didn't have a mirror, but I, I thought, Oh wait, I got my phone. So I, I pulled out my iPhone and turned the camera around so she could see herself and handed it to her. And she just stared and stared and stared and just was in disbelief as because she could see her face whole for the first time. Wow. And I thought, again, this is the, this is a harbinger of the kingdom. Like, this is this is what God wants to do with the world, and this is what He's always told us to do. Then I'm in the OR for this little girl who's a, who's a year, and she's got a similar condition. So that's that's the surgeries they were doing that day was kids with cleft palate. And again, in the U.S., you do this all this stuff, 
it's it's lickety split. It's no big deal. In another country, it's totally different. I was asking the surgeon, he was an Afghan, I asked him, so what happens if she doesn't get the surgery? And he said, she'll never go to school. This is a one-year-old baby that's lying on the table. She'll never go to school. Um, she'll never have any status in the culture because she won't be able to get married. And there will never be a wedding, which is the biggest event in Afghan culture. They're just huge about weddings. Like, there'll never be a wedding. There'll never be a marriage. She won't be able to have kids. She'll be completely forsaken. And as he was getting done with the last suture on this little girl, this little tiny one, he's cutting off the thread and he says, and now there will be a wedding. And I, again, I'm like, this is awesome stuff. I could go on with 500 of these stories. I've been to all these hospitals and seen stuff and they're all like this. Like every kid I get to visit with, I get to know their backstory and I can't believe it. I just, I absolutely cannot believe and what healing means to them. And then when they go back to their villages and people are stunned or back to their communities and people are like, who did this? Like we've, it's, if it's hydrocephalus in Uganda, like the kids are dying by the dozens and they're considered cursed monsters. And then somebody heals their baby and they go back to the village and these like, we told you you were cursed and now your baby's fine. What happened? And they're, they're able to say, Jesus did it. These people who follow Jesus love my baby. And they said, he's not a monster. He's loved. And he said, they said, I'm not cursed. And this happens every day. There's something about healing. So a lot of times they go back in their villages and the whole people, the whole villages we've had, we've had situations where entire villages have come to Christ because of it, because they've been following this, you know, medicinal or, you know, a traditional healer. And he's been saying it's all about curses and it's all about, you know, you must have done something wrong to anger the gods or your dead ancestors, but it doesn't work. And then Jesus comes along and heals the baby and people are going, what happened? So again, I can go on forever, but uh, just to give you some examples, that's what's happening. That is just remarkable. What a, what a picture when the doctor, you know, he's closing the wound and cuts the suture and says, now there will be a wedding. What a picture what a picture of how healing leads to fruit and how healing leads to, you know, the proliferation of all that was meant to be. And it's just so, so powerful. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing. As I encountered this, I've been thinking about my own relationship to God, like the way I walk out my Christianity or what Christianity even really means. And I think if people saw this, they would really give the kingdom a second chance. People have taken those intellectual shortcuts. If they, if I could take them to a hospital, you know, people, people resist God for many reasons. Um, but for those people who are genuinely open-minded and want to know what difference does he really make? You know, I'd love to, I'd love you to show you the inside of one of these places because pretty obvious. It, it kind of takes it from the biblical idea of I was blind and now I see way, way, way back then to here's a little girl in Afghanistan who could say I had a hole in my face and now yes. I don't. Yes. And here's the other thing I didn't understand. And you probably being a little more theological sophisticated than I am. Um, you probably got this. But when they bring the guy to Jesus and he's blind and they're arguing about, well, whose fault is it? You know, who did it? Who did the wrong thing? Who sinned? That is such a relevant question around the world for kids who are born with disabilities because mom is almost always blamed. 
It's always mom. You must have done something wrong, immoral, and that's why your kid is cursed. And it's, it's amazing because across all these different cultures that we're in, that Cure has hospitals and programs, and that's, that's kind of a universal. And so people are wondering, you know, who did the wrong thing that would yield this? And, you know, why is this child cursed? Who did it? And Jesus answers their question. It's not, that's not the, he, he says it's not that anybody sinned. It's that it's so that God can be glorified. And I didn't, I never understood that until I was visiting these hospitals because now, indeed, when the healing happens, God gets the glory for it. And it's not, Mom, you're cursed. It's, Mom, you're loved. God draws close to your broken heart. He hears your cry. And now this child is able to run and giggle with all the other little girls and hopscotch, and she can do what she wants. And it's, it's all to the glory of God. I finally, it finally kind of clicked for me. Well, it's got to be so fulfilling uh, and encouraging to be able to see those things. It is, and also to invite other people to be a part of it, because obviously funding is always an issue. We could There's 100 million kids, believe it or not, around the world who have correctable disabilities. And you would think, like, just as a Christian, well, then let's correct them. I mean, come on, we can do this. And it's nice to be able to invite people in to say, hey, if you want to get, and I do, I ask them, hey, give your money, we'll be healing more kids. There will be kids able to walk because you gave. And I like people taking part in that expression of what the kingdom is. I, I really enjoy not just even playing with the kids and seeing the kids in the hospitals, but, but asking people to be part of this because it winds up being a blessing to them because they get to even see each month. You know, if they get monthly, they get to actually see the kids they're helping heal and see their stories. And that's a pretty neat way to encounter Christ, I think. What's the website for Cure, Brent? Cure.org. Real simple. That's pretty easy. That is pretty easy. It's a great site, too, because you can see the kids that are in the hospital right now and their backstories. Hmm. Well, for our listeners, I hope they check out Cure.org to find out more about it. So is your work with Cure in talking to and interacting with people on the margins, is that part of what inspired you to write a book called Blessed Are the Misfits? Not so much, um, but I, I do think it certainly intersects a lot. I think people, like, I have I have Asperger's syndrome, you know, I'm, I'm diagnosed on the autism spectrum, and there is a commonality with a lot of us Aspies that we've got this thing for the underdog, and I know everybody loves underdogs to start with, but there's this particular thing that comes like for animals or little children or, you know, things that are broken and misfit. And I have seen that as a commonality with a lot of, a lot of Aspies. Um, so I, I, I think maybe just the fact that I'm, I have that advantage in some ways, like that I'm attracted to broken little things. It kind of makes sense that I would, the cure would kind of flip my switch. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Well, for those of our listeners that aren't familiar with uh, Asperger's and the autistic spectrum, can you talk, as you did in the book, about what that is like for you? Yeah. Um, it, of course, these are broad generalities, but it, in general, it's it's difficult picking up on social cues. I don't get them. And I don't understand why people do things that they do. It seemed to make sense to other people in the Asperger's community or in the 
you know, autism spectrum community, we, we call people that aren't on the spectrum neurotypicals and neurotypical people. You, you know, you just do things, you know, you shake hands and you look each other in the eye and it makes sense to you. And I'm thinking, why are we clasping our hands like this? And I'm thinking, I can't look you in the eye. It's hard for me to do that. Um, I always look at the ground. I've always looked at the ground. Um, that's very common with, with Aspies as well. So a lot of it's a social issue. Um, we just think differently. I don't consider it a, dis- a disorder. I think we're different. I think we have insights that other people don't have. But there's definitely struggles that go with it, too, because you never feel like you fit in with people in a social situation, ever, ever. And that's just that's part of being on the spectrum. Of your two books, Unoffendable and then Blessed Are the Misfits, which is coming out in just a few months. uh, This one is really, really personal. And you disclose a lot, including the Asperger's. But you talk a lot about how that influenced you socially and in school. Yeah, I uh, never quite understood why I didn't fit in at the time. I wish I had the diagnosis earlier, but it just wasn't really around or popularized at that time. And it, you know, I did some odd things in school, for instance. Did you want me to read this part of the chapter thing here? Or- yeah, so I, I, I was uh, wanting you to talk about how it impacted you, but that would be a perfect time to do that because this chapter from Blessed Are the Misfits is really touching, but also hilarious. Um, well, do you want me to start at the top of the chapter, or where, where would you like me to start? Any idea? You can start at the beginning of the book and read all the way to the end. We, we, we have 63 minutes left, and I think if you read quickly, this can be an audio book. All right, well, let's, let's try it here. This is, this is yeah, I, I, I structured it as kind of like the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are these people, and I'm trying to explain it. There's a lot of good news for those of us who are oddballs, and this chapter does deal with that. It's called Blessed Are Those of Us Who Apparently Landed on the Wrong Planet. So the formula for teenage popularity was in place. I had a neurological condition that caused me to shake my head nonstop, which is true. It's called nystagmus, so even now my head is shaking back and forth. Uh, I was severely nearsighted, and I had two lockers to house all my large print books. I had Asperger's syndrome. I was also the president of the Illinois Student Librarians Association. That's right. I helped organize annual library-themed conventions at which we played Dewey Decimal Bingo, and I'm not making any of this up. Just to make it worse, I played the flute in the band. I don't know why I chose to play the flute, but I did, and I wound up being the only male flautist, I'm confident, in Central Illinois marching band history. Actually, I do know why I chose the flute, but I don't want to admit it. I was in sixth grade and I'd just seen Love Boat rerun, wherein Julie, the cruise director, played the flute. I thought the flute made a nice sound. Pretty sure in light of that admission, if I ever had any shred of street cred remaining, it's now been obliterated. Please know that Assumption, Illinois, where I'm from, is a farming and hunting town. Also, football. That's what teenage guys do. You work on the farm, you hunt, you football, you chew some skull. That's it. You do not farm, hunt, football, chew some skull, and play the flute. I grew ashamed after I realized I'd picked the apparently wrongest possible instrument. Humans have cultural norms about musical instruments, and while I don't understand them, the flute is clearly not an option for guys in the Midwest of the United States, but no one told me. But it was too late. My mom would not let me quit playing the flute. That's yet another sentence you won't hear Vin Diesel saying. So I had to figure out a way not to be seen. 
I asked the marching band director to kindly put me in the interior of all our formations. Unfortunately, tragically even, I was pretty good at playing the flute. I beat out all the high school girls for first chair in the band. You would think they would be impressed by this show of alpha male awesomeness, but they were not. If you think this is the nadir of the story, that this is rock bottom, let me assure you it is not. Oh no, my friend, this is just the setup. We practiced in a band shell arrangement with woodwinds on the lowest level. The floor was a hard tile, the walls concrete block. One afternoon, our band director, Mr. Sesco, had us all together, junior hires and high schoolers, to practice for a big concert. The room was silent. Everybody was already warmed up. Total silence. And a sheet of music fell off my music stand. It wafted like a feather floating behind me and settling on the floor. I reached back through the gap in the metal folding chair, contorting my shoulder a bit to reach the music, and tipped over the chair. It fell over. I lay atop the chair, my arm pinned mercilessly between the folded seat of the chair and the back of the chair. I couldn't get out. My body's weight pinned my arm inside, and I couldn't get up because my arm was stuck. Please know that a folding chair under precise conditions can become a Chinese flautist trap. The room was silent except for my lonely, clattering cacophony, I mean. My struggle was loud, as it generally is, when a boy is vainly flipping about, dying fish-style, clanking a metal folding chair against the hard floor. No one said a word, or helped. They just watched in shock and awe. I flipped, and I tugged, and I flopped, and I clanked. I remember looking toward the clarinet section where two girls I had crushes on, Tammy and Jill, watched in a mix of concern and amusement. I remember looking up as I thrashed about at Mr. Sesco, still on the podium, baton still frozen in ready position, his mouth agape. Clankety, flip, clank, arg, clankety. Eventually, I can't remember how, but the chair let me go. I know I got loose because I'm not currently wearing a folding chair. I do remember I had to leave for x-rays. I had to wear my arm in a sling at school. My mom eventually let me quit playing the flute, but it turns out that when whatever you were when you were 13, in your mind's eye, that's who you are. So in mine, I'm a small kid with glasses, and I'm on a tile floor in front of a crowd, and I'm wrestling a folding chair. You've been listening to Restoring the Soul with Michael John Cusick, produced by Brian Beatty and supported by generous listeners like you. To learn more about our life-changing intensive counseling process for couples and individuals, visit RestoringTheSoul.com.